0: What's up everyone and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights.
1: We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from under-selected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Words. <laughs> hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Breakline Arena. My name is Chelsea Conley and I play for Team Breakline.
0: What's up, everybody? It is Sophia and I also play for Team Breakline, and we are joined with the wonderful Bethany.
2: Hello, everybody. Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. Delighted to be here with two of my favorite people.
1: Love it, Bethany. Why don't you intro up our special guest today? I know it was a really interesting conversation.
2: Yes, I had the pleasure of interviewing Nicole Camarillo. Nicole is co-founder and chief talent and operations officer of an up-and-coming company called Rebellion Defense. And this was actually a very sobering conversation for me. Nicole spent a lot of time talking about her concern um, that the United States as a country is not keeping pace with technology. And she actually said, if we're not investing in technology at the national level, we're making ourselves vulnerable for a future of defense where it's much more about code rather than combat.
1: Ooh, that's intense. Sophia, what do you think?
0: She has really been at the the nexus of technology, of defense. She is an absolute queen in this space. And my favorite part was that she is elevating the defense industry to step up To the challenge of advanced ai but she's also challenging her own team to think really critically about how they're building their own teams in a Mm -hmm. way that sustains effort in the long term so meaning talking about psychological safety in the workplace talking about their values and ethics but also acting on it acting to ensure that they are creating deliberately diverse teams that are trained to identify their own biases so that they can address that in their decision making, but also in the data that they're using to train their models. So I could not have been more inspired by this conversation. And we are so amped to share it with our wonderful listeners. Absolutely. Why don't we just dive right in?
2: Welcome everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Nicole Camarillo, co-founder of Rebellion Defense. And Nicole, thank you so much for being with us today. Would love to kick things off by just hearing a little bit about your story, including why you co-founded Rebellion Defense. Would love to just dive into your background a little bit.
3: One of the primary reasons I co-founded Rebellion Defense was the deep passion and commitment I developed while working at Army Cyber Command uh, with young soldiers who have technical backgrounds and are extremely eager and capable of solving some of our uh, biggest technology channel challenges, especially when it comes to national security, mm-hmm. but the traditional structure of the military makes it very difficult for them to be able to just focus on engineering and technology uh, in any meaningful uh, way for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And what I experienced was a lot of frustration on their part and passion for the mission but not being able to do what they believe they is their biggest contribution, which is their engineering skill sets. Hmm. And ultimately, they will leave, and they'll look for other ways to work on mission. And unfortunately, the 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 primary option usually doesn't allow them to build products and work on hard technology problems. So part of starting Rebellion for me was creating that place for them, creating a place Mm -hmm. where they could come, work on these challenges with us, and work directly on mission because we only work with the Department of Defense. We're starting to work on intel issues potentially. It's all mission focused, and I thought it was very important for them to have that opportunity to continue to serve, just not in a uniform.
1: Hmm.
2: And Nicole, your co-founder, Chris Lynch, formed and led the Pentagon's Digital Defense Service under multiple presidents. And he called his former DoD team a SWAT team of nerds, which I loved. And because it really is illustrating what it looks like to serve today. And you've written about this extensively as well. You you wrote an article recently about how it's not about the submarine, it's about the software. Will you tell us a little bit more, what are you all up to at Rebellion Defense? What, what are you building? What objectives are you going after? What challenges are you and your team hoping to meet in, in the coming years ahead? So,
3: We have taken a very bold step toward tackling multiple challenges that we experienced and worked on while we were still in the department. And that is a broad swath from traditional, what you think of as traditional cybersecurity, defending networks from adversaries. But then there's also another aspect of being able to process data quickly and meaningfully enough to be able to use it to make decisions when time matters quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, there isn't a lot of solutions out there to process this data in a way that they can say, okay, this is what I'm looking at, this is how many here's my here here's my universe of options and approaches that i can take and so that is really trying to make it so that they are going out on difficult missions they may not have visibility we also have joint operations with other forces and sometimes it's just the ability for them to communicate information quickly and I think really at the end of the day, a lot of avoiding catastrophic unintended consequences is really just around communication. And mm-hmm. can you get the information you need quickly enough to understand what you're, what you're facing and then, and then make the, the best possible decision? And so for us, we are hyper-focused on keeping them safe and keeping their their ability to essentially do their jobs to be, to do mm-hmm. what they're being asked to do to make sure that they have the appropriate technology in order to do that.
2: Mhm. Mhm. One of the the aspects of building this company and even just the space that you all are in and and leading in that we talked about, and you had a lot of conviction around this, was the shortage of talent in the US. If the primary issue is that defense is is now becoming about code rather than combat, Mm -hmm. and the United States is not necessarily in a position right now to meet that challenge with the way that we're currently preparing and upskilling and readying the folks that we have in this country, I'd love for you to just talk broadly about that topic and even some of the experiences. You're a Stanford alum, and even some of the experiences and conversations that you had at Stanford that sort of illustrated to you that there's an opportunity here for us to help folks understand that they can contribute to national security in a new way.
3: Sure. I actually don't think there's a shortage of technical talent. I think there is a gap in educating our technical talent about this mission space mm-hmm. uh, and about the problems that we're trying to solve and why their skills are so desperately needed to work on these these problems. My experience when I initially started working uh, for Army was a lot of skepticism around whether kids from universities with the top computer science programs would ever consider working for government. And in my mind, it's one of the most interesting missions you could possibly work on is national security. It requires top secret clearances and and up. So it's things that you will never hear discussed in public. Mm -hmm. And it's really, they're really hard problems that people are trying to figure out, which every engineer wants the hardest problems. They wanna be the one to figure it out. And so it was really shocking to me. The answer to my next question was, have you asked them if they would Mm -hmm. come work on this mission, if they're interested in this mission? And really the, the answer was there was no consistent effort or outreach to students at universities with you know, and, and, and I don't want to just focus on the highest ranked universities. There are universities all over the country with fantastic computer science programs. So I think there's even just not having that awareness of where to look for this technical talent is another challenge. But in general, my experience taking generals and some of our younger officers who are engineers to Stanford and hosting events to have dialogues about our mission, the kinds of technical skill sets that are needed, and the types of problems we're trying to solve, I was surprised to hear from students that they're actually quite passionate about Mm -hmm. cybersecurity. They're quite passionate about national security. They want to be engaged. They want to be of service. And there really is no clear channel for them to know what the opportunities are. And I also found on the other side of it, which was pretty disappointing for me, is I, I don't believe the computer science, some, of, some schools have computer science departments, engineering departments that don't believe that the government is a good use of their students' time when they graduate. That messaging is mm-hmm. really damaging to any real curiosity or opportunity to explore you know, how can I apply my technical skill set to this mission? Where am I needed? I, I think there needs to be a partnership with universities. CMU has an, is an excellent example. They have an excellent mm-hmm. relationship with DOD. And they have some incredible research teams working on really tough problems. What I would love to see is that happening at a wider scale at universities across the country. Educating them, like, here are the things we're up against. Here are things you know how to do that you could help us figure out.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and really
3: have, you know, this the side of the professors an investment and in at least presenting those problem sets to their students and giving them a chance to engage and encouraging them. It doesn't have to be the first job you take when you graduate, but I've always been very oriented towards public service, incorporating public service into whatever I do professionally. And from my experience talking to students, I believe that that that's pretty common.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, one of your your co-founders, Oliver Lewis, was talking about this, the, the friction that you all are sensing within academia in terms of really enabling their students to even consider a role in in public service. And he said something like, if the top students are going to be looking at offers from all the big tech companies, and that you all really wanted to position Rebellion as an alternative to that, that type of mission. And he said, if you want to go and optimize food delivery, that's great. You can go do that. Yeah. If you want to do something that's about defending democracy, you can come to Rebellion. Which I just thought was such a powerful and compelling kind of you know problem set. Like, hey this is actually where the biggest problems are being worked on. You know, the the hairiest challenges, by the way, the ones that may have the most meaningful a- impact on our day-to-day experience in a, in a functioning democracy. And I, I really love the way that you all were positioning that as an alternative that is just as attractive, if not more so, rather than what you described as professors saying that they didn't feel that government service was a good use of their students' talents.
3: That's that's one hundred percent correct. And Ollie does everything in a British accent, which makes it sound <laughs> even more even profound. smarter. <laughs> yeah, anything he can be saying the rudest thing, and it will sound so incredible. <laughs> I, so I think that's part of it. There, What tech startups are there who are primarily focused on serving government as a customer? Most companies mm. will be private sector facing, even if it's just for the sheer need to stay viable financially as a company mm. in order to scale, right? So it's really difficult for small startups to get into this space and focus on this mission 100%, right? And inevitably, they will start doing other things, potentially on the commercial side, to maintain momentum. And I think what a lot of times what happens is that just becomes easier. It's more straightforward. It's more predictable. And that has been the challenge for us, right, is we feel like we're in uncharted territory. And I think that's also why it's so important for us to be successful, to be a beacon, not only for talent, to feel that there are places of excellence to come focus on this mission, if that is something that they're passionate about, but also to give uh, leverage to smarter tech companies who have incredible solutions that if they were accessible to our military today could be game changers, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the other side of this is it's not just a technology challenge. It's a government Mm -hmm. Government's ability to buy technology challenge Mm -hmm. in a way that keeps pace with how technology evolves and develops. Like, you know, you can update your phone every time a new update comes out. If you have software that you are selling and there's an update that hasn't been approved yet, you have to go through like a several month long process to get that approved before those updates are available. And so, you know, and that's where I think the discussion around we're not buying we're not buying submarines and tanks and airplanes as the only means to defend our democracy. We also need to use technology. So access to technology and the ability to acquire it efficiently is going to be so critical. Uh, to our ability to maintain any sort of advantage over our
2: adversaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And part of, part of the one piece of the puzzle for Rebellion was actually raising venture capital to, right. to build the company and to help fund the operations, build the team that you're talking about. You all recently raised $150 million at a $1 billion pre-money valuation, which is amazing. And... It's also really unusual. And your team has talked about how unusual it is. And I think um, it was Chris Lynch who said there's a new wave of people coming into VC who have the courage and tenacity to support our nation's defense. Why, why, in your view, was the venture capital industry reluctant or hesitant to come to the table before now?
3: I think it's just general economic principles uh, Mm -hmm. a bit of what I mentioned earlier is Mm -hmm. it it is they want to see a return on their investment and when you have government as a customer it is unpredictable you Mm -hmm. are subject to the acquisition process most companies don't have that expertise Mm -hmm. Mm in-house they don't have the understanding that I believe is essential for any company to be able to successfully do business with government Mm -hmm. around contracting. All the laws that come with government contracting, there's so many rules and regulations that have to be followed that make it very difficult to plan for with any predictability Mm -hmm. because anything can happen. And a lot of Mm -hmm. times government contracts can be challenged. There will be vendors who are not happy with the selection process and they will Mm -hmm. try and sue and that will stall the contract getting awarded so there's all these things that happen when you're working with government that don't happen in the private sector right Mm -hmm. you are in in the private sector most companies are focused on a product that they're developing that they hope to be cutting edge ahead of everybody else and so I think Oftentimes when it comes to traditional Silicon Valley investing, they're trying to find out what the next big thing's going to be and put money on that. That's really difficult to do when you're talking about a mission-focused company like ours who isn't just creating – we're not even just creating one product. We're trying to create multiple products and a platform that will address many issues. And so I think that's also very (laughs) unusual – for a startup, but it's also very risky for investors. And I will say a a lot of our investors who have decided uh, to invest in Rebellion were already very passionate about national security Mm -hmm. and the defense space, had experience, understand how complex the challenges are and how dire it is for us to, to be competitive and to be able to provide the best technology to our military. And there's no easy way to do it. And mm-hmm. there are a few companies who are similarly trying to, to work primarily with defense. But I don't, I actually f- believe that we have to be successful in order for VCs to take risks on companies like mm-hmm. ours. Mm-hmm. We are the best. And I think we just had this unique shared experience across the co-founders of working in government, working in defense. Ali was formerly a military intelligence officer who served in Afghanistan. And you have Chris, who started Defense Digital Service, um, right in the middle of all all the challenges and all the problems. That's, And then we had this incredible team that he was able to build within... The Department of Defense, who all have different specialties, like either they were working as software engineers, designers, product managers, and then what we call bureaucracy hackers. Hmm. So they understand how things work, and they know what's going to be required to move more efficiently and getting problems solved. And so that it was such a powerful force at the end of people don't wanna leave once they have the opportunity to serve in that capacity and be on a mission. Like you, it is a SWAT team of nerds. You know, they were called on to come and and serve like one to two years in government yeah. and work on these problems. And when they tried to like go back to their normal lives, they missed being on mission. They missed the camaraderie of working on these shared challenges and supporting mm. our military. And so I think we were uniquely situated to bring in tremendous talent to come and focus on this space.
0: Mm-hmm. I And I think
3: that is unusual. And I hope that it, it doesn't, You know, I hope, I don't want us to be the only ones. I want mm-hmm. other companies to be able to try to solve these problems along with us. I think it's vitally important that there's more energy and investment in this space. Mm-hmm. But I also think you need to have a business model that shows there is a potential for high success if you invest in a company like ours. Mm-hmm. And so we've got it, We've got to figure it out because we want this to be something that VCs believe in and are willing to invest in.
2: Mm-hmm. Nicole, we've talked around the magnitude of the mission that you all are going after. You you and your team are working on products that you've said defend democracy, humanitarian values, and the rule of law. Just that scope of focus <laughs> is so vast. And, um, and also... It, you and your team have said you're driven by the urgency to equip leaders with cutting-edge software to protect our country and our allies. We've talked around the magnitude. I'd love for you to share more about your perspective on national security and how equipped we are as a nation to, to face the challenges that are in front of us. So that's a,
3: that's a big question. And I, I can give you my opinion of where I think we are. I think mm-hmm. we are putting forth our best effort mm-hmm. to remain competitive when it comes to technology against our adversaries. But a country like China is investing so much money in AI. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to compel their technical talent and their most successful companies to work for the government and focus on the government's priorities and their military's priorities, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have that option in the United States. We have to rely on people volunteering both to serve in our military, but also to choose to work in this space at all when it comes to software engineers or anybody with a technical background. Mm -hmm. And so I think just that fact alone puts us at a major disadvantage, And in my opinion, there needs to be, you know, more of a, I don't know where the education component will be most impactful, but I just feel that a lot of people don't have general awareness about how fragile really, and it sounds so dramatic to say how fragile our democracy is, but I think we've been seeing that in the last few years that our elections can be manipulated our pipelines are being hacked like there are things that we have taken for granted that are always going to be functioning and will always Mm -hmm. be secure and you're starting to see little examples of that not being the case at all and you know what we have to do is make greater investments in the technology that's going to make us better at protecting those things and fortifying those things. And I, I it doesn't take much to destabilize a country mm-hmm. and, you know, and to create chaos, right? And so in my opinion, so much of that is able to be done remotely from a computer, mm-hmm. right? You don't even see it coming. And so in that sense, um we we aren't ready I think we we've gotten very comfortable assuming that we're fine that our government has the technology it needs to protect our systems and and protect us and really that is evolving all the time like Mm -hmm. technology is constantly evolving and if we are not investing in it and trying to be the best in all of these areas, then we're making ourselves vulnerable. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned that one of the reasons why more companies haven't gone into the space is the difficulty and the friction and the lengthiness of the procurement process. Mm-hmm. Some of these processes can take years even to work <laughs> through. And with yeah. a startup with limited means, time is your most precious resource, right. you know? And so it's a big deterrent. And you have said that one of your skills is hacking through bureaucratic, legal, and policy obstacles to drive progressive initiatives. Will you share a little bit more about how you were able to do that? How did you drive real outcomes in the face of the red tape and the bureaucracy involved in working with the government?
3: I tried by having really detailed conversations about what I had been observing and learning from the technologist both civilian and military, who were surprisingly facing very similar obstacles in terms of being technologists and being able to work on hard problems. And I wasn't getting anywhere, and I realized there had been a lot of papers done on and assessments on what the military needs to do to better recruit technical talent. And some of these were like 10, 15 years old. And it would have been the list that I would write you today. And Mm -hmm. so I thought, okay, it's not because the information isn't, hasn't been, you know, articulated and communicated. Like, here are our biggest challenges and here's what we need to do. So what else can I do to contribute to solving this problem? And ultimately, it's a culture challenge. And culture is the most difficult thing to change in an organization, and then you take the army that's over 200 years old, and these traditions are tried and true. And they served us for quite a while. But mm-hmm. now we've had a point where there need to be some changes in order to allow us to continue to be competitive. And my only, at one point, my only option was to prove it, right? I felt mm-hmm. like I was in a position where I needed to prove that what we were saying would make a difference. And so I went to my boss at the time. He was General Nakasone. At the time, he was the Army Cyber Commander. Um, and I asked him, you know, this is where Chris Lynch and Defense Digital Service come into play. Can we partner with them to work on some of these problem sets? Can we take some of our super talented engineers from the military and partner them with a team of people who can teach them best practices, teach them mm-hmm. how you would build a product in the private sector, because we don't have designers and product managers in the military, or even in, those are not typical job roles, right? And then the senior software engineering expertise was also lacking, and that was something that DDS could offer us. So my proposal to General Nakasone was give me the challenge that you want us to work on, what problem that you're trying to solve that they can try and tackle, and we will time-bound it. So three months is a typical time span to get to an MVP when you're building a product. So we essentially created an incubator inside the Pentagon and we joined forces essentially. And the challenge that we worked on, the first challenge we worked on was the counter-drone capability and that there had been tons of prototypes and options delivered to the military none of them were portable and our team was able to build the the first portable solution and because we pushed for best practices we had to get them out in the field to do user testing in words, real-world real world situation. Will this actually work when it needs to work? And part of what I found most interesting is that I think a lot of things get built for the government without access to users and without user testing. And why that's important is because this team, even the military uh, folks, were... Wanting to build an app for a smartphone that would control this capability, right? Mm-hmm. So we get out there, and we don't have smartphones. We barely have network connectivity out here. Like we just need an on and off switch. We need it to not make sounds um, when we don't want to be detected, and we just need to know that it's working. And you know, they were then they they dumped the app. Which would have been would have looked really cool, and it had all kinds of features, but it really wasn't necessary. And mm-hmm. so I think there were so many lessons that came out of that. We did remove the red tape; they were able to move faster, and that's primarily because Defense Digital Service had the ability to work around some traditional requirements in solving problems with software. So that enabled them to be able to get the supplies they needed quickly, to be able to get access to researchers. we Because we did it all in an unclassified space, which is another challenge, right, is that they want to classify many things out of an abundance of caution. But what that does is it deteriorates your ability to, to collaborate with other tech companies, with other researchers, and Being able to see how dynamic their world became by opening those options up and how quickly they were able to build something that worked. They had an MVP in three months, right? We said three months, and if you guys aren't making progress, like, that's it. We're not going to get to move any faster uh, on any of this stuff. And they did it. And, you know, the best part is we were able to build – several more teams after them to tackle different problem sets. And it, it worked. And so for me, the other the other challenge I was having was that senior leaders weren't really interacting with engineers. So they were trying to guess about what it was going to take for them to stay, what it was going to take for them to be interested in working with us in the first place. And all the things that they thought were the most important were actually the least important, to mm-hmm. the engineers. They didn't matter at all. It really did come down to culture and being in an environment that supported tech development and you know removing a lot of barriers around hierarchy, things that really do make it difficult to be innovative mm-hmm. when it comes to technology.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I loved hearing that story so much and also when we were chatting the other day, I was really recognizing something I feel myself as you were talking with such conviction and such energy around the work that you all do at Rebellion Defense and the purpose behind it and the mission. I recognize that conviction in myself for breakline and I'm just all in and for the last 6 years I wake up with butterflies in my stomach and I haven't been to work in 6 years. I'm getting yeah. to pursue something I'm just so drawn to on every level and I can tell that the same is true for you. Why is that, Nicole? What is why are why do you have so much conviction around this space that you're in? And and you even said you all have to prove the case for all the companies coming behind you. It's an enormous responsibility. Why are you so passionate about it?
3: First and foremost, I, I've always wanted to be of service. I've always respected the sacrifice um, that our military members make for us, even before working with them and having any exposure. And once I did and get to know them and their families and the conviction they have to protect us, regardless of whether we want to support them, in it's true sacrifice. And I thought if there's any way that I could possibly help make their lives easier or, or make their jobs safer, I want to do it. And I never imagined myself that way. I think when you think about working for the military or working for defense, you think about traditional, like either you join the services or you have some kind of background in defense. And I, I, for me, the, the, the epiphany that I had was I can be of service. I can be an advocate, which has been very important to me my whole life, is to be able to advocate for communities that need the support and and don't have access to it. And here I felt I was advocating for this technical talent to be able to excel and solve these challenges that we want help with, but we haven't quite connected our ability to leverage the talent we have to solve those problems. And so I saw a role for me to actually contribute. And the, the passion i have for this mission now is it really is the opportunity to serve it is the recognition that our democracy should not be taken for granted i'm a lawyer by training and you know we stand on the heels of our constitution and what we believe our rights are as citizens and it's like that doesn't come for free and realizing like making that connection I have kids. I want this to be a place for them to have opportunities. And it also, starting a tech company has been illuminating in the sense that I have been in work cultures that were toxic that really drain your energy and desire to try to make a difference. And this was a blank canvas, essentially, for me to take all of those lessons learned around building great cultures, investing in people, being in a position to give people opportunities they may not otherwise have, getting the opportunity to educate women about negotiating and what it means to have equity in a company. And things that I myself had to learn, right? Because it was my first time. And the ability to generate wealth for individuals who would otherwise never have that opportunity. Because that's not where they come from. And for, same for me, right? And I, I do believe that the ability to do that makes a lot of things possible if you want to make a difference you can invest in other organizations or other companies that are also trying to have an impact
2: when we last talked you it reminded me of a line of commentary where you were describing the fact that you are you're you're one of the few leaders in tech women leaders in tech And then on top of that, you're also one of the few women leaders coming from the DOD space and now in a defense tech company. And so you are in a position to blaze a trail. And, and, but that's not your day job. You got a day job on top of that. Yeah. But you've also described sort of leaning into this unofficial role that that you have as somebody to kind of provide leadership around diversity and inclusion and i'd love for you to talk to us about some of your experience related to context switching and and even what you'd like colleagues from majority communities to know especially perhaps in the spaces that that you move in and that you lead in with your voice what would you like Our colleagues from majority communities to know as they move in those spaces as well?
3: I would say the most important thing is this is a shared burden. It is something that all leaders need to care about and be invested in and set examples for. I feel actually a a huge weight on my shoulders because there are so few women. Mm-hmm. in defense and in tech, in leadership positions. And so I feel like I'm constantly keeping my eye on that ball to make sure mm-hmm. that we are moving in the right direction and that we don't lose sight of our conviction around that because that is a shared conviction. I didn't have to convince anybody that we should be invested in diversity and investing in inclusion, because it actually takes work. I think that's the part that we don't talk about, is people don't necessarily inherently know how to address their own bias. People don't know how to be inclusive. You're not taught how to be inclusive, especially in a work environment. So I think there are things that people do that, that seem innocuous, that can actually be very detrimental to people feeling like it's okay to speak up or to have a different opinion. And so those are the types of things that you never get to stop investing in Mm -hmm. or providing, right? Is that continuous evolution and awareness. And I think it's very easy, especially in a startup culture where you are under a lot of pressure to hit milestones, you are under a lot of pressure to hire talent as quickly as possible. It takes a, a, a toll if you slow down to invest in the other aspects that, to me, are equally important. What kind mm-hmm. of culture do we want to sustain in our company? If we haphazardly bring people onto our team, like that, could negatively impact our ecosystem, right? And our values and what we have promised our team will always be important for us as a company, no matter what. So to me, I think what's exhausting is I feel like the person who always has to raise their hand and be like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. We talked about this. We're gonna we're going to always make sure that we're considering these other things when we're making business decisions and to my team's credit they appreciate that about me they thank me for it sometimes I feel like a broken record so I'm glad that they at least appreciate it and they do see that as a differentiator for us Mm -hmm. but it's not like you said it's not my job it's -hmm. not my day job it's something that I believe we should all be monitoring and looking out for and training everyone in our company to take responsibility for as well and And I think if you haven't encountered the challenges of not having psychological safety, mm-hmm. feeling marginalized, feeling like you get shut down. If you've never had that experience or that hasn't always been your professional experience, you're just Mm -hmm. not going to be thinking about it. And Mm -hmm. that's okay. But educating you and making you aware that that has happened to other people is part of the solution, right? And I always say that we all (laughs) come with our baggage from old jobs. And even personal experiences Mm -hmm. can impact our attitude and how we receive people. And so those are other components that I try to incorporate into educating our senior leadership team, but also our whole company is talking about things like this, which I don't think is probably very (laughs) typical. Mm -hmm. But I really do feel like people need to deal with their personal challenges in addition to their professional challenges to really reach their potential. And all of these things, I, I think on a very human level, I'm hyper aware of. And sometimes I feel like maybe the only one who's keeping the eye on the ball sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And not, and what we had chatted about was, I want to do my job too. I don't want to have to keep hitting the buzzer when we're missing the mark on things like that. And I want to be able to be productive and focused on all these other things that are important for us to accomplish. So I think the message is it really is a shared job. It is everybody's responsibility uh, to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable to our values and to our principles and to our commitments And we have to do that for each other. It is not one person's job. It is not a team's job to worry about diversity and inclusion. It's every single person who joins our company's job. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that I always talk about when we welcome people onto the team, is you got to hold each other accountable uh, to these
2: things.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Again, such a um, robust and thoughtful response to that question, and it also reminded me of the fact that you and your team have created a really thorough set of ethical principles by which you run the company. and You talked about the intersection of diversity and inclusion and values. And I'd love for you to share more about why it was so important to be so complete and so thoughtful with respect to your ethics. Why, why was that you know, an, an early decision that you all made and then to publish them publicly for everyone to see?
3: Part of the reason, it's always been part of our discussion internally since day one of the company was how will we make sure um, that we do our very best to prevent our technology from being used in ways that were not intended or for purposes that were not supported when we were building them. And that has inspired continuous dialogue in our team from going from 10 people to now almost 200 people. And we have a, a specific person on our team who has facilitated monthly discussions on the ethics of how we're building things and who we sell to, even who we will take investments from, right? Because back to Ollie's statement of supporting humanitarian values and the rule of law, like that. that is on so many levels, important to anyone who touches this company or who we interact with or deal with, right? So I I think that was a given for us. What I have been most moved by is the level of participation in the monthly ethics conversations. Those ethics that we have published came from those monthly conversations. They are a reflection of our team. And as it has been something, it is inclusive. Anyone can go to those discussions and anyone can participate. People had the ability to comment on the ethics principles that we put out. We had ethicists come talk to our company about how to build a decision-making framework in this space. And obviously, because we have AI ML, a lot of the concerns people have is how that technology is gonna be used. And so we knew we needed to be very thoughtful from the very beginning and very clear about where we stand on those things. I think we have a lot of people who've never worked with military before. They've never worked in defense. They have never worked on projects that might be connected to lethality in some situations, right? That is a very real part of our job and what we're working on. And so this is our way of making sure that the people who come join this mission, we are very transparent, and they are very much at the table and how we make decisions around building these things and who we're going to work with for them to be
2: used. Hmm. Thank you, Nicole. And I know we're coming up on time here and you've talked a lot about the macro environment for national security. You've talked about the, the purpose behind Rebellion Defense and the scale of the mission that you all are going after the ethics that underpin the company some of the infrastructure you have around your yourself and your team to to get it done i'd love to hear a little bit more i mean you all are growing really rapidly and who are you looking for in terms of like who needs to join the team and what are you thinking about when you interview folks who are interested in contributing to, to the mission that you all are are going after. What do you want candidates for Rebellion Defense to know and to be thinking about when, when they come and, and have a shot at interviewing with you?
3: One thing is either an openness to the mission, if they haven't worked on it before, or a passion for the mission. I think the thing the primary driver for the people who come to rebellion is the mission and it is the thing that gets us through the most challenging and frustrating times is that we showed up for a greater purpose and not just for ourselves and our own personal achievements and the other for me is one of the things that that we've always looked out for is a willingness to learn and a willingness to teach people will take the time to stop and bring someone up to speed people who have never been in defense it's overwhelming to you get bombarded with acronyms with this crazy acquisition process like why you want to know why why we're not making more progress with this customer, and so we have people who volunteer to explain how the DoD budget process works, how the acquisition and procurement process works, what it's like to be in the military, what are the challenges that people have dealt with. Having those real-world stories to add context is part of what I believe makes us great, and then you have veterans coming in who've never been in a startup before. And so you've got the startup folks or the technologists who are also able to contribute and bring them along into this new culture for them. So that's really important is for us to have that empathy and patience and also the willingness to, to be wrong and to learn and grow as well, not to be the one who has to have all the answers all the time. More specifically in terms of who we're looking for, our veterans are obviously a priority for us. But also for me, people of color, especially women, especially in engineering, I think they've been woefully underrepresented in the tech sector for a very long time. And they haven't really been motivated or inspired to want to work in tech because there have been so many barriers. So for me, I want this to be a place where we can provide the psychological safety, an inclusive environment, a very thoughtful environment. Because, as you know, being in defense, building with AIML. For defense, we have to have different perspectives. We have to be able to challenge each other. We have to be able to express opinions. And I don't think that we can ethically and responsibly work on this mission without the diversity and critical thinking that needs to come with it. And so you need people who have had different lived experiences, who see the world differently, who understand other cultures, they're all important, right? So, to me, I feel like we have many compelling reasons to make that a priority as a company.
2: Nicole, thank you so much for carving out time, for sharing about your own journey and that of Rebellion Defense, and what you're thinking about as you all approach the next horizon for the company. It's been fascinating to have the opportunity to connect with you.
3: Thank you. It's been great chatting with you and learning about your mission too. I, I wish you all the
0: success. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a
1: little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling.
0: Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.